You experimented with microdosing on psilocybin. That's their magic mushroom ingredient. Yeah, I'm on mushrooms right now. As oh, I yeah. Speak. <laughs> this is the Ideas Lab podcast, where you can learn from great creative and entrepreneurial minds how to turn your ideas into original businesses, books, and brands. Because in a crowded world, it pays to stand out. This is your host, John Williams, best-selling author and founder of the Ideas Lab London. Jerry Hyde was once described as the world's most dangerous therapist. He's actually been my therapist and creative mentor for the last 15 years. Coming from a background in theatre and rock music before training in therapy, Jerry now works with individuals and men's groups and runs vision quests in Nepal and elsewhere in the world. In the last few years, he's been experimenting with ayahuasca and other plant medicines. Jerry has influenced my own creative work, and in fact, he helped come up with the name Screw Work Let's Play for my first book. He is author of four of his own books, including the most recent Book of Sin. Check out the show notes on the website to find references and links to everything we talk about, and to see photos and video clips from our conversation. Just go to theideaslab.org forward slash podcast. So, Jerry Hyde, thank you for joining us on the Ideas Lab podcast. One of the things I really wanted to get to the bottom of with you is you work exclusively as a therapist. I would describe you, you might argue with that slightly, predominantly with creative people. So you have writers and uh, musicians and filmmakers within your client base. And the question that will interest a lot of people listening to this is, what is it that most commonly holds back creative people from doing what they really want to do? I don't work exclusively. I think I've found that angle, and that's how I promoted myself in the past. Mm. But I think I work with people to find creative solutions to their lives. You know, what stops people being creative is not, A, not thinking they're a creative person. So yeah. I think that's, a, that's an interesting point, isn't it? You know, to live life in this world and in this city, you've got to be creative. You know, to pay the rent, you've got to be creative. So it's tapping into that and exploring what creativity is. But what blocks people most is... Yeah, they're self-critic. It's that self-judge. And it's fear. And it's fear of humiliation and fear of shame. So it's a very, very naked thing, I think, to share yourself creatively. And I can never remember the quotes that I use as a rule, but someone clever said, a work of art is not complete until it's been exhibited. That was me. Was it you? It was... It was <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the creative act is incomplete without an audience. Yeah, that's the issue, right? Is Am I worthy of presenting yeah. to an audience? Am I going to be heckled? Am I going to be laughed off stage? Am I going to be ridiculed? So our early experiences that form us, that are often ones of humiliation and exposure, you know, in a classroom or in front of our family or our friend, that's what gets deeply imprinted. And you go, whoa, I'm not going there again. I don't yeah. care what it takes. And, you know, I think I've done this great picture or I've, I've written this great book, but what if I publish it and everyone hates it and says it's shit? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people will say, who am I to be a writer? Who am I to, to do this or that? Well, I never, ever thought of writing a book because, you know, I didn't do well at school. I'm dyslexic. I'm not a great reader. And I assumed I couldn't write. And I remember being with Grayson Perry, this is a long time ago, this is at least 15, 20 years ago before anyone knew Grayson Perry was and him in his kind of brash Essex way going, everyone thinks they've got a fucking book in them, but how many people actually sit down and fucking do it? And I thought, right, I, that's a challenge I'll take on. <laughs> it really inspired me to 
to think, okay, yeah, let's see if I can do it. I used to kind of fool myself, uh, fool myself critic into leaving me alone by going, well, I'm not going to publish it. It's yeah. that old trick of writing a letter that you don't plan to send to someone. It, it gives you that freedom to write and then you quickly stick it in the post before you change your mind. And it's yeah. the same thing. It's like write a book that, that I don't plan to publish and then quickly publish it before my, my self-critic wakes up. You're doing some pretty interesting things. You're taking people to Nepal in April, is it? Mm. Can you say a little bit about what's happening in Nepal? Nepal is something that's evolved over the years. I used to run a lot of Vision Quest. You know, I started doing that about 11 years ago now. And what's a vision quest in your... Vision, vision quest, heard that I mean, I've stolen it from Native American culture, like mm. just about everything else from a Native American culture, but I don't pretend to be doing it in a traditional way. I think all spiritual practices, if you look at them, have some kind of time of, you know, time of solitude and fasting. So we're in Lent at the moment, you know, Christ in the desert for 40 days, mm. 40 nights, that kind of thing. So a vision quest is where you go into nature, you sit by yourself for four days. That's that's the format I use. You sit by yourself and you fast for four days, and then you come back and talk about it. It's right. a very simple thing. But if, you're basically sitting out in the middle of nowhere mm. on your own mm. with no, there's no tent, there's mm. no, there's nothing. You 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 allowed uh, like a a bivy bag, whatever that is, like a yeah waterproof thing. cover for your sleeping bag mm. and uh, some water. Yeah. And then that's it, and you don't eat, and you just you're just alone with yourself for yeah. And it's a, it's it's a kind of it's an experience to be away from all the technology that we're mm. all slaves to now. Right? Yeah, have a relationship with yourself, and I think I I was pulled to it quite instinctively. Now looking back on it, you know, quite a while later, I realised it was it came from a, a kind of deep yearning for some kind of rite of passage. And I don't think I felt like a man or even like an adult till I'd been through that process. Mm. Um, in Nepal, we've kind of taken it a step further in the after vision quest, which I always thought were an amazing process, but somehow instinctively I felt something was missing. I didn't know what it was. When I hit 50, I started exploring ayahuasca and plant medicines. Right. And then I thought, okay, what if we put the two together? Which was kind of scary because I don't like to, <laughs> um, I don't like to recommend anything to anyone unless mm. I've tried it. You know, I'm always my guinea pig. Yeah. But I couldn't do an ayahuasca retreat and a vision quest because no one else is doing them that I know of. Right. Um, but now what we do in Nepal is we do three nights of, of ayahuasca and then you go straight into a four-day vision quest. <laughs> And so, so just to get us clear, for people who don't know ayahuasca, this is this came from the um, the Amazon, didn't it? Mm. It's a it's like a natural tobacco of a tree or something. Ayahuasca is weird in itself because it's a recipe, right? So, so oh, I okay. think there's like, don't quote me on this, hundred and twenty thousand different species of plant in the Amazon. Mm. Somehow they worked out if you put this one with this one, oh right, it has this incredibly powerful healing psychedelic yeah. journey. So, it, and and what it does, it makes people. Vomit first of all, because it's probably because it's toxic, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, or is there I, something else? But it's. I'll be, but the, but I'll be really honest with you. Whenever I take it, it makes me really sick. And I, when I'm when I'm lying there mm. puking, I'm thinking, I don't buy this hippie shit about it being some purgative healing thing. This has just poisoned me. Right. And the first time I ever took it, I remember I was too shy to give you a bucket, which is a great amplifier. And I was just too shy to, to throw up in front of everyone, even yeah. though everyone else is. It just sounds yeah. like a room full of demons vomiting. 
So I went to the toilet to throw up. And as I went into the toilet, I remember I heard a voice in my head. I said to myself, I've got to get this shit out of me. And this mm. voice, this other voice very clearly said, mm. fine, but as long as you know that it's the shit you brought with you, not the shit that's just been put into you. I was yeah. like, whoa, okay. Wow. <laughs> um, I don't know. If feel, I feel poisoned, but the truth mm. is the first but They time- call it purging because the idea is that there are things you need to get out of you but are, but are coming out as your vomit. First time I did it, I was seeing clients that I haven't even thought of for 20 wow. years in the bottom of the bucket. And the next day, one of the helpers came, no, two of them separately mm-hmm. came to me and said, do you work with people? And I explained what I did. And they went, yeah, we thought you were carrying a lot. I've never considered the impact of what I do that I carry other people's toxicity, mm. but it was there in the bucket looking back at me. So yeah. Maybe. But what, I, so I did Nepal last year for the first time in this way, and I was mm. nervous and it just worked a treat i mm. mean everyone had an amazing time so my instinct luckily was good and i thought about it it's pretty crazy because they're taking this thing three nights running yeah you know purging mm. <laughs> or vomiting depending on how you see it or not not everyone does oh, okay true a lot of people don't and then but but then beyond that it it has a kind of psychedelic effect would is that how you describe it or it takes you on a on a it's like it's like a it's like taking a truth serum and it induces mm. a dream state for most people uh, so it's like you have lucid dreams but they're very very mm. specific healing dreams and for me there's been a lot of time travel involved so i've gone back in time and mm. it's not a memory that it evokes it's actually a, a visitation so i've been able to kind of go back to 1968 and be in my family or be in my mm. home and see what the the atmosphere was and i think that's been people talk about being operated on by aliens and all these things the most profound thing for me was going back to my house when i was a kid and feeling the atmosphere there was nothing psychedelic going on there was no demons or angels it was just feeling how awful the atmosphere was in the house and so that's a tricky thing to get to in talking therapy you can you can reminisce yeah but to get to an atmosphere and realize that the impact of that atmosphere on me as a little kid was to think wow, the, the vibe here is so bad and it's my fault because I'm unlovable. Right. And to kind of shed that was yeah. enormous. But there's a lot of there's a lot of glamorization or hysteria either side, I think, with mm-hmm. things like ayahuasca where people think it's all going to be death experiences or, you know, alien abductions. And right. some people get that stuff, but it's been subtler for me. Yeah. But the thing with combining the two, because, yeah, mm. we do three nights of ayahuasca and then people go off on their own for four days on the back of that, which sounds really heavy. It was actually really mm. gentle. And what I realized works about it is, for me, I would say a vision quest is very masculine because, mm. you know, men go to their sheds, right? The, mas- the masculine yeah, yeah. principle isolates. And ayahuasca is intrinsically feminine. And, and just about everyone that encounter- has an encounter with ayahuasca will encounter some kind of feminine intelligence or yeah. spirit or deity or whatever you want. Certainly for me, it feels like uh, an interaction with a plant that's that's essentially feminine. Mm. So by mistake or by instinct, it certainly wasn't a conscious thought. I've created this thing where you have the masculine and the feminine mm. perfectly balanced and they seem to work really well together. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, and, and then and you get a rite of passage that is kind of working with both, both those polarities and you get yeah. people coming out very whole. And since I know some of the people who are um, who've done it, they've yeah they found it really powerful, really transformational. So yeah, I think it's it's fascinating. I'm not convinced yet, but I want to go in the pool <laughs> and uh, taste it's, something no, poisonous. It's, but it's not for everyone. <laughs> it's really not for everyone. I think it's it's something I would 
I'm balanced to say to people, avoid, don't do anything like that until you feel a really strong intuition that it's right, right. for you and until you've yeah. really done a lot of research, until you've really mm. talked to someone like me, you know, someone who's got some experience of it and can help yeah. you kind of come to that place. But if you're, if you're in doubt as to whether it's right, I would say you know, err on the side of caution. And you've been, you're also a proponent of doing it somewhere that's going to really look after you. So there are, yeah. there are places in the UK that do that. Um, yeah, no, I've, I've said for a long time, I'm, I'm pro-drugs, I'm anti-drug abuse, by mm -hmm. which I mean, and this is happening more and more, you know, we see it more in social media and the news that things like magic mushrooms and MDMA and mm. LSD are being used psych psychotherapeutically, which they always were. And yeah. When they became prohibited, it was shut down within the psychotherapy world and the psych yeah. psychiatric world just because it suddenly became illegal. But for a long time, there was a lot of pioneering work being done with those things. And now mm. as the attitudes towards um, prohibition and you know, this war against drugs are relaxing slightly, I think mm. people are beginning to go back to seeing the, the use of them. But, you know, if you get shit-faced in a warehouse in, in Hackney on something that you've bought off someone on the street and you have mm. no idea what it is, then you're asking for trouble. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was going to talk actually about your history because at one point you were... Getting um, shit-faced in warehouses and having yeah. so drugs that I bought from you're people. A, <laughs> you're a heroin addict for quite a while. I wasn't a heroin addict. No. no. I've How do you describe it then? Yeah, no, I never ever took heroin because um, oh. I thought if I take heroin, I'll become an addict. So I took everything else from oh, opium realize. and methadone. And oh, okay, right. <laughs> so her but heroin like substances. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I took plenty of opiates, but never heroin. because And it was just that kind of stupid kind of way of thinking that I guess all, all addicts are, mm -hmm. are con artists who are, are very adept at conning themselves. So yeah. I just thought I'm safe. And there was a lot of heroin around. Right. But I never took it just because as long as I don't take that one and I'll be all right. right. And I was smoking 25 joints a day and popping Valiums and sleeping pills. You know, I'd go out on sleeping pills. Wow. At that mm. point. I took opium because I knew I couldn't get hooked on it because there wasn't much of it around. How long did this go on for? It started when I was at school and I was given Ritalin. You know, mm -hmm. Ritalin's really good speed. Like right. Lab quality amphetamines. Mm. And we used to do a lot of amphetamines when I was doing music because it keeps you awake and it keeps mm. you sharp and you perform well, or you think you do anyway. And it keeps you awake when you've got to drive up and down the motorway in the back of a van and that kind of stuff. Mm. But I was given it when I was 14 because I was doing really badly at school. This was in the days, because I'm nearly 54, uh, this was in the late 70s mm. before dyslexia was something that I think was particularly recognised. Right. I was given every single test possible and that word was never flagged up. Mm. I was having a lot of troubles academically. So they had me tested when I was about 11 or 12 and I came out with a very high IQ. Mm. And so they went, okay, the kid's not stupid. So what do we do? So they gave me Ritalin. And I remember the psychiatrist who prescribed me said, and normally we give this to fat ladies, but we're gonna, we're gonna give it to you, see if we can pep you up a bit. So they were diet pills. Wow. That's what Ritalin was being used for in the 70s. The thing I resent about that, there's quite a lot of things I resent about that because it can really fuck your brain chemistry up. And I think giving mm. those kind of hardcore drugs to children is not necessarily great. I don't know if it affected me mm. adversely. What I resented was just that they all then slapped themselves on the back when I got my exams and went, great, we did a great job because we gave them pills. And, that's, and it's like, right. well, yeah, I worked my ass off <laughs> as well. And when I quit drugs, that was easy. That was really, I just woke up one day and I thought, this isn't fun anymore. You know, mm. and I couldn't. I couldn't remember when I'd laughed. It was just, it'd become maintenance. 
So that was easy. I just woke up and stopped. But what was the hardest thing to kick and took me a long time was leaving the, that, that culture. Drug culture was really tough because I had to walk away from everything. Mm. Um, I had to walk away from my social scene. I, I didn't even know what clothes to put on anymore, you know, because it was such an identity. And I don't think people recognize that enough. And then you got into therapy. Yeah, that was very clear. That was a moment in like my second or third therapy session where I went to a therapist because I, I wanted support in getting through this phase. I was 28. And uh, very quickly I thought, wow, this complete clusterfuck of a life where everything has gone wrong and I've ended up a drug addict and I've got no idea what I want to do with my life. Suddenly all this shit becomes a, a, just like a load of qualifications rather than a load of disasters. So, yeah, I trained to be a therapist and still do that. But that, I mean, that was 25 years ago or something. Now I started training. But I guess I've morphed it into something. And now you've written how many books is it? Is it four or five or something? Written four, published three, and I'm working on another one at the moment. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's as much about selling books or reaching an audience as it is exercising that creative impulse which for me is my addiction now because i don't believe that you get cured and i wouldn't want to be cured you know if i was given the option of being cured there's no way i'd take that but for me that that, that was something i discovered quite early on in therapy was my creativity is that it's like the flip side of my addiction that's the kind of light and shade mm -hmm. yin yang thing and if i don't write which I do, I write addictively. If I don't write compulsively, if I don't create compulsively, I'm going to destroy compulsively or I'm going to get yeah. into bad habits. So that's not what, a lot of choice. Um, that's what people say about the 12-step programs. Like people get addicted and they, you know, they want to go to every single meeting there is and there's ones like every day or multiple times a day. But they say, that's okay because that's a better addiction than you had before. Yeah. Right. So at least for a while, that's not such a bad thing. And you've been my therapist now for, I think it's 15 years or slightly longer, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, really should be cured by now. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't resist asking this question. What's wrong with me, Jerry? <laughs> uh, what's wrong with you is that you think there's something wrong with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think you've got, a, I think you've got quite a blessed life. I think you're unusually brilliant and... You're just uh, frightened to admit how good it is, you know, for, mm -hmm. for understandable reasons. I think that's, yeah. I, I mean, Eckhart Tolle put it really well, didn't he? He said that I think um, the biggest obstacle to change that people face, and this keeps me in business, sadly, mm. is is the attachment to who we think we are rather than who we really are. Right. Yeah. And who we really are is, is something that's evolving and changing constantly. Mm. So it's never something you're going to pin down, but we like certainty. Mm. Um. So we all yeah. get attached to these ideas, you know, and our stories. And it's one of the the kind of dangers of therapy is mm -hmm. you can get overly identified with with some stories that we become attached to. Yeah, it kind of reminds me. I can't remember who said this, but something about um, uh, it takes bravery to be happy, mm. and it takes um, so in, in, and that's what I get from what you're saying, which is like if you can if you can dare to admit things are actually pretty good, then that takes a certain bravery to do that. And not be, you know, pessimistic and downbeat about everything. Yeah, because it's safe being pessimistic. Because then you yeah. can say, oh, I told you she'd leave me. Yeah, yeah. I told you I'd get fired. Right? It's mm. safe. But I remember when I first started to get glimmers of happiness, mm. 
I, it frightened me. Mm. I thought, wow, I've got something to lose now. Yeah. yeah. When everything's shit. It feels more vulnerable if, uh, yeah. if uh, when you, to be happy and open. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. then, then you can, you know, you can fall. I remember I asked a different version about, God, it might, it probably might be about 15 years ago. And I said, so why don't we just cut to chase and save a lot of time and money and you tell me what I what I need to do to be cured. And you said off, off the cuff something quite profound, which was you just need to own your positive projections onto people. Mm. But which I took it you meant that we all project uh, bits we don't like about ourselves onto people. So we see other people as greedy and we can't see the greed in ourselves, for instance. Uh, but we also project the positive things. So, mm. you know, you might project for your... You know your intelligence or your warmth or whatever it might be, yeah, and read, only see it in other people. You read, you read anyone who has a good understanding, you know, Jung or whoever who has a good understanding of the shadow. The one thing they all agree on is you can get people to admit that they're greedy or selfish or mean or nasty or murderous or violent <laughs> fairly easily. Mm-hmm. It take long to get someone to admit to their brilliance or their genius. You know, that's pulling teeth. It's really difficult. And yeah, because we're English, right? You know, I mean, yeah. maybe it's different in America. It's the one thing I really mm. like. Well, no, there's a lot of things I like about American culture, but the thing I really like is the American dream. And and they're a fan of success, right? That's that's, yeah. their, that's their belief. And Donald Trump is the American dream. You know, mm. he's this asshole who became president. <laughs> yeah. Um so he, he proves to everyone. I think that's part of his appeal to some people is he's the kind of yeah. living embodiment of the American dream. We don't have that here. So if you have a Rolls Royce, it's kind of ostentatious. Mm. You know, it's a bit showy. If you're if you're flash, certainly the worst thing in the in the playground, worse than being gay. You know, mm. when I was a kid, there were two things you could be insulted by. Really, mm. one was you were gay. Yeah. I'm talking late sixties, early seventies. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were a puff in the in the playground, mm. and that that the rhetoric of the of the language of those days. Um, but probably worse mm. was. The, the idea that you were boasting or showing off. You know, if you were called a show-off, yeah. that was really, that was real ostracization. That was taboo. Mm. So I think we've got this real malaise in in England, in Britain, where we play down success and we we hide it. And we're sh- you know, there's a certain shame to, to being yeah. too big for your boots. And, you know, it, and it's difficult to be creative if you do that. And yeah. I spend a lot of my time with clients trying to coax them to share what they're good at and, and to be honest about it, but also to show themselves. So I'm always trying to get people to find what's the, what's the thing that's unique about you and that you might even think is a bad thing and put that front and center in your brand or in what you do and build a business around it. I and mean, then it'll be more successful. Mm-hmm. And you're, I think you're very good at this taking, you're always encouraging people, you know, cause I'm in the men's group with you as well. You're encouraging people in the men's group to, take the things that um, that they might be ashamed of and actually at least integrate them so that it, that part of them doesn't rule their life unconsciously, mm-hmm. but ideally use it in a positive way um, and, you know, bring, you know, that into your relationship, into your relationships and into your work and so on. And also to be willing to use the dark parts of you uh, as part of, um, as part of your brand and who you are. Mm-hmm. And to accept the the all of life, dark and light. I think those are some of the things I get from you. And you've just written a book, um, The Book of Sin, which is just coming out. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell me what that is about, because I think this might cover some of that topic. 
that you introduce any word, you know, if you're going to do an anger management workshop or you're going to do a sexuality workshop, you start thinking about anger because you build up to it and you prepare for it. So it puts it into your consciousness. So I thought, I'm just going to plant this seed of this word. I don't know why. I have no memory why, of, of why I thought of that because it's a very redundant, out-of-date old word. Mm. I thought, I'm just going to focus on sin for a year. I'm going to kind of journal, diarize, whatever, uh, whatever I, I know through those lenses for a year. And what I ended up with, because in part, it's a kind of 350-page Facebook rant, which I like doing. You know, I don't say that as an apology. Uh, I just looked at everything that we've got, and I picked a really peachy year. I mean, 2016. Yeah. You know, I remember sitting here with my editor the day after Trump got in going, Jesus Christ, I mean, I can't believe this. And there was a kind of moment of silence, and we both went, it's quite good for the book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Brexit happened and all yeah. this shit was going down and all these people dying everywhere. Every minute you kind of logged mm. onto Facebook. Or oh, yeah, that's where all the celebrities Everyone was dropping dead. So it was a really weird year to be focusing on this thing. Mm. So I observe and comment on a lot of that stuff that was just going on around me. But mm. I think the end result was two things, which is I was looking at codes and, mm. and rules that we've we've lived by and discarded that used to govern people's lives. You know, the Ten mm. Commandments, the Seven Deadly Sins really used to have a yeah. huge hold. But I thought, okay, so, so you know, there's a problem in living without any kind of tells me how I should relate to you. I think mm. if you want to throw the rule book out, learn it by heart, then mm. reject it and replace it with something that's more conscious. Yeah. I'm not an anarchist, you know, and, and yeah. I'm, not, I'm hopefully not reckless. Um, but that was that was a, a major thing that came out of it. And the other thing was, you know, we talk about, you know, I mean, I'm a fan of Russell Brand, and I thought his whole mm. kind of cry for a revolution was great, but when actually questioned, so how are we going to do it? Mm. He was always a bit fluffy. I thought I've spent a, a whole year moaning about what's wrong with the world. I need to find some solutions. And I came up with some ideas that might change the world. Again, it's not about people taking my ideas mm. it's uh, and running with them necessarily. It's just introducing the idea that actually you can change the world, but you've got to find how you can do that. For me, I was, you know, I took my children out of mainstream education. I would challenge people to really think about that because mm. it's a very, you know, certainly a middle-class concern, you know, oh God, you know, where do we live in the school thing? Well, do something different because that mm. changes the future. I think challenging the drug policies is really important so that they can be used in, in a more therapeutic way, mm. more constructive way, because the war against drugs just results in death yeah. and misery and ignorance. You yeah. know, so that's something that could be changed. Oh, yeah. On the subject of the book, you did the gonzo journalism thing yourself because one of the things you hooked onto was an experiment around a sin of pride, was it? Where you decided not to... It yeah, explain what you did. Pride and vanity are, are kind of listed as, yeah. as the biggest of the seven deadly sins. So I thought I'd just see what happened if I didn't shave my head or trim my beard for a year and just kind of let myself go completely. Um, didn't really work because I just bought hair products and preened <laughs> my increasingly long beard more and looked like looked like every hipster down in Shoreditch you know so. yeah there was a moment I remember when you turned up for lunch with uh, me and Grace my, my then girlfriend and Grace just looked at you and went oh my god Jerry what have you done <laughs> in uh, I felt, I felt, it was quite I, a strong look as yeah. <laughs> I found huge freedom in it you know because yeah. I hadn't realised how conscious I'm, yeah. um, you know You've experimented actually with, um, uh, you know, there's some interesting stuff going on with MDMA, but also 
You experimented with microdosing on psilocybin. That's their magic mushroom ingredient. Yeah, I'm on mushrooms right now as I oh, speak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, well, I take uh, 0.25 grams every day. Okay. Uh, which is what's called a... I thought you'd be more perky than usual. <laughs> uh, no, what's it called? A um, sub-something dose. I can't remember mm. the word right now. It's, it's, it's yeah. below the threshold where you're going to feel it. Sub-perceptual dose. Right. Uh, so what does it do then? What I've noticed is that I'm sharper, I'm more focused, I'm insanely creative. I mean, the, mm. the book I wrote, the last book, is edited down to about three, I think 330 pages, something mm. like that. That's from, it was three times as long. So we wow. had to do a lot of killing of our babies, as they say. Um, we had to cut a lot of that out because mm. I, was, I became so prolific, it was kind of unstoppable. <laughs> I'm more energetic. I think I'm a nicer person. I seem to be more compassionate and less mm. reactionary. You know, I was described as a hysteric by a therapist years ago, and I think he was right. I can get very enraged and inflamed about things. And when I take subperceptual doses of mushrooms, mm. I'm not tripping, I'm not high, I don't mm. notice any effect yeah. any more than when you take a vitamin C, you don't suddenly notice anything, yeah. but it, you know that it's benefiting you. So it's like taking psilocybin, and I, I know people are doing the same with LSD, seems to do is ease the emotional wave pattern. So the peaks and the troughs aren't as extreme. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm generally a, a kind of calmer, more reasonable, more peaceful person. And yeah, I get a parking ticket. I can, it kind of washes over me. I'm more philosophical. I don't get, you know, I don't, I don't overreact to situations. Yeah. I saw the good stuff. And do you make this yourself? <laughs> At one point when you're preparing it. Yeah, no, I grow, I grow them. I grow them myself. I get kits shipped from really? Holland. And then you. Then I grow them and then yeah. I dry them and then I powder them and I put them into gel caps. I've got a little machine so I know the dosage. And then I, you know, they, they're in amongst my vitamin supplements that I take in okay. the morning. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. So um, that's been really interesting, Jerry. So the book, the book of seeing comes out, probably out by the time this is uh, released. So what's the date? It's It'll be on Amazon? End, uh, end of July, July 27th. Oh, is it? Not, Not till July? Yeah. Oh, okay. So look out for the book of seeing, but they can find your other books, including Play From Your Fucking Heart, which mm. I can thoroughly recommend uh, on Amazon. And uh, where do people go to find out about you and everything you do? I own my website, jerryhyde.co.uk. The only website in the world designed to put people off, you know, that's my filtration <laughs> system. But if, if pe- it seems to work. The people who find, you know, that's yeah. the buzz for me is the people that seem to find their way to work with me. Mm. It's what makes me want to keep doing it. And that was something I discovered mm. right back at the beginning was it was okay to say no to people and to define the kind of person I want to work with. And the kind of person I want to work with is the kind of person, if I met them in a bar, I'd want to sit and chat with them. You know, it's a chemistry mm. thing. I think you've you've done something really interesting in terms of branding, which is you've made a strong statement in your website and in your branding and where, you know, the things you say and do, and that will alienate lots of people who would just go, oh my God, there's no way I trust this guy mm. to give me therapy. But for the people for whom it is appealing, then it would be, um, you know, all the more appealing, which is one of the things I'm always trying to get people to do. As long as you're bland and you don't show any personality, then no one's going to like you. Mm-hmm. But what you've done is created something where the right people will be very attracted to you. Yeah, no, I'm obviously repulsive, right? Because I think, I mean, last I haven't looked for a long time. Last time I looked, my website had about 50,000 hits mm-hmm. and probably about, 
150 people or 200 people have ever come and seen me. So mm -hmm. that's 200 out of 40, 40,000 people really didn't like me. <laughs> that's fine because I haven't got room for 40,000 people yeah. in my practice. And that's the point. You know, there's no such thing as the right therapist. There's no such thing as Mr. or Mrs. Right in the world mm -hmm. in any sense. There's chemistry and there's, there's who you click with. And mm -hmm. that's a quite personal thing. Um, and I would say to people, 80% of this is, is, is chemistry 20 percent is whether you're in you know you go see freud you can go see Jung. if you th if you think they're an asshole you're not going to get you know you're going to work well with them so mm. that's really important that mm. you um that you click okay well glad we clicked all those years ago and uh <laughs> thank you jerry i really appreciate that oh, that's fun thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ideas Lab podcast. Please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review. You can get links and details of everything mentioned in the podcast in the show notes, along with photos and video clips from many of our episodes. Just go to theideaslab.org forward slash podcast. Podcast.